0: The Paul Leslie Hour. Helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hugh Taylor is a hotelier. Along with his wife, he owns the Outermost Inn on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. He's also a singer and recording artist. He released an album entitled It's Up To You. And he has a background performing in bands... Some of them were called The Sands of Time and The Bedpost Reunion. So, Mr. Hugh Taylor, how are you, sir?
1: Well, greetings, Paul. I'm fine, uh, and uh, thanks for having me on.
0: It's a great pleasure. So, tell us, where were you born?
1: Um, well, I was born in, well, I was actually born in Duke Hospital in Durham, North Carolina, but, uh, but basically uh, we, we, my family was in residence at Chapel Hill, uh, in those days and and I consider myself a Chapel Hillian, so basically born and raised in Chapel Hill.
0: So tell us some of your Chapel Hill memories. What was the the mood? What was it like? Well,
1: that's an interesting question. You know growing up in a in a college town, particularly sort of a southern college town and 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 of course, UNC is sort of a the oldest public university in the country and it it sort of has a sort of Ivy League sort of feel to where it did in those days, you know, as, um, you know, a big brick and ivy, uh, you know, uh, architecture and things um, uh, and quadrangles with brick, you know, sidewalks and and that kind of thing. But um, growing up there as a kid, you know, you you have sort of a twisted sense of what the world is really like. All of those, you know, as a sixth grader or ninth grader or whatever it might be uh you you think that all these eighteen to twenty two year olds that are college students there are the grown ups you know then you know and so so it, it's and growing up in a college town like that you sort of emulate those people and and you know and you think that's what grown ups are like and you know so you spend a lot of your time sort of you know wishing you were a you know a college kid which in you know in a lot of instances is just a lot of shenanigans and and what I now know now to be kind of uh, you know sort of uh, n- not particularly grown up behavior.
0: And tell us a little bit about your parents.
1: Uh, well, my mom and dad met in uh, when my my father is a North Carolinian was a North Carolinian he he's passed now but uh, uh, as my, as my mother more recently but uh, he's a North Carolinian but uh, a driven man who. Uh, Wanted, uh, who's, who academically, uh, uh, you know, sort of measured himself by his academics as a, as a, as a youngster. And, you know, it took him through UNC and then on to, uh, uh, Harvard Medical School where he was, you know, uh, you know, full of accolades as a accomplished student. And then he did his internship and residency in Mass General at, at, at which point he met my mother who was a, uh, Massachusetts, uh, born and raised, uh, the daughter of a fisherman and a boat builder in, on the, at the mouth of the Merrimack River in Newburyport, Mass. But it was my father's intention to go back to Chapel Hill and and practice and and sort of spread the, his medical skill to the populace there. And and so, although all of my older siblings were born in when they were living in Boston as my father was finishing up his residency, they moved to North Carolina in in 1952 when my mother was pregnant with me. And I'm the last of that of those five siblings. And the youngest of those five siblings. And, and, uh, so it was a co- sort of a combination of this, uh, extremely, uh, sort of credentialed and, and popular, you know, southern man and, uh, you know, tall and, and, and dynamic and, and his, uh, real forward thinking bride from New England. She sort of thought the, the South was the cultural desert of the world and, and, and Chapel Hill being really sort of a, um, you know, a mecca for, for, you know, a, a very diverse group of academics and, and, and students for that matter, you know, was a, was re- really a pretty good match for her, uh, for someone that otherwise might not have wanted to live in the South, I guess. And, uh, and, and my father was, uh, was just this kind of, uh, guy, tall, you know, handsome man who, uh, you know, accomplished and a very, you know, Southern accent. Uh, very, you know, really good bedside manner. He would have been a really good politician, in fact, uh, because he was such a, uh, people's man. You know, they, they called him Dr. Taylor everywhere he went, whether he was in the ice cream shop, the hardware store, or, or, um, you know, or, or walking, you know, in the halls of the hospital at UNC. So, you know, it, they were a, they were a dynamic, uh, couple and, and they brought these five kids up down there with my mother's sort of, progressive tastes and and uh, and we were a pretty robust and active little uh, little band you know that uh, and and i guess you know to a certain extent we 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 wanted to be as attractive as our parents were and so we well strive for that attention from them and 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 the comparable attention from others i suppose
0: what would you say is the most valuable thing you learned from your parents?
1: Boy, that's a goodie, you know. I, and again, I, I would say, uh, you know, their character uh, is probably the most. Uh, and character, to me, is sort of—it doesn't mean you're Billy Graham, particularly, and you know, just all good, good, good. But you know, character is built with uh, with. Your, your good parts and your bad parts but uh, but the ability to be able to reconcile them uh, face them and uh, and and deal with things in a real level you know and so I think I think uh, more than anything it was just their character that rubbed off their uh, nobody makes a whole life of, of great decisions people make bad decisions here and there and but but how you handle those and stuff you know I think those those uh, the way I looked at my parents and the way I, I watched everyone else look at them is probably, you know, what, you know, what sort of rubbed off on me. I hope it did anyway, uh, in, at least in the better senses of it. And, um, to be, um, and, and to learn that, you know, you don't bull crap anybody or, and, and particularly not yourself. You know, if you, if you've got shortcomings, you need to address them and not, not sort of, uh, no, know, be, be as frank and as honest with yourself and everyone else as you possibly can. And, and I think I, I learned a lot of that from them.
0: What about the music that you grew up with? What were you listening to?
1: Well, they they had a, you know, in those days they call it a Victrola, but they had a record player and a pretty good stereo system, and there was a fairly large collection of, of music that my folks, uh, uh, you know, appreciated and listened to, and they and i guess that was a lot of show tunes you know a lot of broadway stuff a lot of show tunes uh and then a lot of uh classical music as well um they like comedy records uh from um stiller and Maris and and uh you know there was funny old uh, uh spoofs that, that were done by comedians about the, the kennedys and their funny accents as they were in the white house i think there was a recording called the first family that was that, that always brought us together in chuckles. Uh, also, uh, you know, some audio book reading, I think, that was early on popular with us, although our folks read to us too out of their own books, particularly our mother did. But, you yeah, know, I would say uh, the show tunes and the jazz and the classical in the music department was really sort of what we what we listened to from them. They also were anxious to follow the new trends that came along in the early 60s and late 50s in jazz that was sort of popularized in Mose Allison's work and, uh, David, uh, Dave Brubeck's, uh, you know, sort of breakout popular jazz that he was doing and, and, and also folk music. Uh, you know, uh, my folks liked listening to, uh, to folk because my father really had a lot of sort of bluegrass in his, Upbringing in North Carolina and and spiritual stuff as well. Uh, not that he was a particularly, you know, particular frequenter of, uh, of organized religion or anything, but but all of that stuff is sort of an intrinsic in in North Carolina life, particularly you know back in the in the 30s and 40s when he was coming up in those in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. But you know, so they had a lot of that sort of folk kind of stuff in the house too, um, uh, black. Black blues, black, uh, you know, muddy waters, uh, you know, all those sort of traditional, you know, black uh, things for those obscure recordings. So there was a lot of that around our house.
0: I didn't mention this at the beginning of the interview, but your siblings and the names of all your siblings Alex Taylor, Kate Taylor, Livingston Taylor, James Taylor, all of them, including you, Hugh Taylor. You've all recorded something, which is, I think, unique if you go around and talk to families, you know. Uh, what do you think it is that, that has caused music to be such a part of, of all, of you and all of your siblings?
1: Um, it, it is, it does sort of sound, uh, uh, Jackson family, or or Osmond esque, I guess, to a certain degree, or Ames brothers, maybe. But uh, yeah. I, uh, I think uh, uh, if you were to add, I think the the pro- probably the genetically the the biggest sort of implicator in this would be the fact that we were all pretty much born singers. I, my siblings and I were all born carrying a tune. We could, you know, the, whatever the muscle control it takes to have your larynx of following. You know, carry a tune in something smaller than a bucket is, uh, you know, was something we were b- born with. So uh, we we came up with an instrument that you know what I call a lazy man's instrument. Really, uh, you know, you just you know we had it all the time, and so so therein lies one what I consider to be a major component in 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 trying to explain why why we all you know gravitated to music. But also, uh, you know, my, I think our folks, uh, you know, love for. it. My father was probably more of a of a singer than my mother was actually a trained singer. And and had she not married my father, probably would have gone on in a career of some variety. Um, but you know, my father was just as capable, or maybe better, at carrying a tune. And 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 you know, we heard them singing, you know, uh, joyously around the around the house all, all our lives. Uh, I remember being embarrassed riding in the grocery cart with my mom and have hearing her singing aloud in the aisles of the grocery store. And I thought that was you know, appalling that your mother would do that. And, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, in fact, it's, it was perfectly fine, but I, you know, I, I remember knowing, I remember her doing that anyway. And, and, and I came up actually, uh, with the same sort of, uh, music in my head pretty much all the time, but I, I solved that problem of, you know, Outwardly singing in public with the by whistling, and I do a lot of that, and I have really all my life, uh, much to the annoyance of the people that work with me. But at any rate, uh, I think it's our uh, our ability to carry a tune that really did it, and then and then uh, we all fostered this grand appreciation for R and B and folk and you know up and coming music that that was really fostered uh, by our oldest brother Alex, who who had a really good sense of records and 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 was always excited as a as a young teenager about you know Inez fox and and oh gosh just i mean it's hard to coaster is the tams the, you know all of that sort of frat house music that was coming out and, and and a lot and stuff that was a lot more obscure than that too but you know so between the exposure we got from alex and the fact that we could all pretty much you know Front of ourselves, uh, or, or or even small combos. Uh, you know, I guess that explains a lot of it.
0: Well, tell us about some of the early public performances that you did.
1: Oh gosh, you know, I mean, we we all wanted to be, you know, uh, you know, you know, frat house college kids in those days. When I, but I, when I was, I think the first uh, little combo I was in, and I never was a player. I've I've since learned to few of what livingston calls the money chords or or the buffett chords you know the you know just the one four five progressions that, are, that pretty much make up rock and roll of the 50s and 60s but uh, you know so i can do some of that now but in those days i was just a singer you know and and i my friends were guitar players they weren't they couldn't sing so they they take up an instrument and you know i remember i think i was in sixth grade when we started playing at little uh, you know parties around the. You know, friends were having, or else um, in the in the basements of the of, of the you know the churches and their youth group dances that they would hold and stuff. And in those days, you know, where well, you would have a Sears bought out of the catalog, a, a Sears guitar or Silvertone as it were, they were called, and a, and the amplifier was in the case. There was a speaker in the case and a small amp, and you plug it in and and run a microphone through that, and and maybe a kid with a snare drum and a top hat and. And then, you know, as we got a little older, it, you know, we, we played more, more stuff. And, and, you know, in fact, I, in, in junior high school, I played a lot of weeknights at, at fraternity houses. I remember as a kid there thinking, telling my folks that I was going to go rehearse over at so-and-so's house. And, and when in fact, what we were really doing was going and playing in, 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 in the backyards of fraternities, in the basements of fraternities for, for, um, their little, I guess they figured it was, they get bored with their jukebox, so they hire some local kids to come in and play live, and and they slow dance with their sorority, you know, cohorts, and or fast dance with them. Always, you know, too much drinking and all that sort of stuff. But it was sort of the world that uh, we thought was the adult life. And I remember, you know, I remember as a kid singing in front of some of those, and these, yeah, uh, over. You know, overindulged uh, sorority sisters would come and you know, hug me, teary eyed, and say, "Oh, you remind me of home and my little brother and stuff." So, I mean, as a youngster, we were doing this stuff, uh, you know, uh, uh, quite a lot. And <laughs> man, we came up through um, school, you know, kind of filling our weeks, a lot of our week nights, even doing that stuff. I shouldn't say a lot, but there was a you know period through four years there where we, we did quite a bit of that stuff.
0: As I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you recorded this album. It's up to you, but I'm hoping you can tell us what was your first experience recording? Not just as a solo artist, just, just period, your first recording experience?
1: Well, back in in uh, junior high school, there used to be a couple of guys, that, you know local fellows that had small studios in, in and around Chapel Hill for recording local talent. And so we did a couple of recordings uh, with them. Never never went anywhere. I think I've probably still got those real, real tapes around here somewhere. But that was with one of the bands I was in, and you uh, in, in high school and junior high. And so we we did some recording then. And then I didn't really get into a studio until James had, you know, after James had come home from his successes um, with the Beatles at Apple Records and stuff. And, and then, and then. Because the the attention of a lot of these major labels went to my other my older siblings. I was still in high school in Chapel Hill at that time, or or I was I was living on my own at the, uh, after that. But uh, the, because of those attentions, they were often in the studio. You know, Kate and, and had a, a record contract, and and my brother Alex had a contract with uh, Capricorn Records at Phil Walden's place, and and Livingston was also on Capricorn, so we, you know, I, I, I was able to, you know, spend quite a lot of time just uh, hanging around those studios, just being with my siblings. Uh, James and I took a couple of trips down to Capricorn. They were sort of, they were trying to uh, entice him into signing with them, and, and so he and I drove down from Chapel Hill down to Macon, Georgia, when, when Capricorn was there, and we met, you know, I we hung around, uh, Otis Redding was there, and boss gags was there you know and i was you know i was 15 years old or 14 years old at that time and and but but i was i was fairly accustomed i wasn't i wasn't sort of glassy eyed and, and slack jawed over standing behind a, a you know a 32 track uh, tape machine and mixing board i mean it was all pretty much stuff that i i felt pretty comfortable with and in and, and occasionally they'd have me come in and sing some backup on you know or just walk into the sound stage and do some work and and so I, that was sort of my first you know sort of uh, experience with that stuff and then you know as uh, as i got a little older and you know they you know people would ask me to come in and sing back up mostly just because they were friends of mine or they liked me or, you know not that i was going to be able to really make any real giant musical contribution but but um you know i, I I got along with a lot of people, and I and I and I would do it as I was do as I was told. So, you know, so uh, you know, some of my uh, there's, there's a number of records out there by my siblings and others that have got me in there background singing.
0: Well, one of the albums that has you singing some background vocals on, Jimmy Buffett has said many times that it was his most memorable recording experience, and he's even talked about possibly. Writing a book about the album Volcano. <laughs> yeah,
1: that was. Uh, uh, I I consider that to be a, a really uh, a, a highlight in, in you know and you know, I, I don't have a musical career really, but I, I, a highlight in my life was to do that record uh, with Jimmy. Now, you know, Jimmy is a just as an unbelievably generous fellow, and and and. His concepts are good. You know, you, you kind of often you get the uh, the feeling in those days that you know, gosh, when you're hanging around with Jimmy, you don't know whether you you know the whatever you were doing that day might end up in a song next week or next month or next year. And and in fact, uh, to a certain extent, uh, that's that's where his popularity is because he could, he made these really memorable things come about and and was able to sort of. Uh, Transpose them into music and, or at least attitude, you know, and in, in his in his music. So when we went down there to Mon, uh, to Montserrat to do that, it was before the volcano had pretty much destroyed that island. It, uh, you know, we went there and Jimmy was very generous with his production money and and allowed, you know, flew us in there. I mean, I I've never been muddied enough to be able to to do that kind of traveling and stuff, that, that you know that that Jimmy was offering us, and so. James and my oldest brother Alex and I, we, the three of us went down there and Jimmy named us the, uh, the embarrassing stains. Uh, <laughs> Alex was the, the, uh, the, the big stain. I was a little stain and James was the main stain. And, uh, we, uh, we, we did quite a lot of session work there over the, over the period of the vocals and James, of course, was, you know, as a player he is and the real sort of phrasing genius he is, he, he puts uh, quite a lot of, of guitar work in on that record as well. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great time, and you know, and, and, you know, we partied a lot and we, we had a good time down there. I, I, I started at, uh, a great relationship with Fingers Taylor, Greg Taylor at the time and which carried on for a few years after that. So, yeah, that that was a great and extraordinary album for us to work on.
0: You know, when I started to bring up and mention the album Volcano, you laughed, which is when a lot of people that have played on that album or produced that album, when I've asked them about it, the first thing they do is laugh. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I guess that's understandable. Well, you know, it, it 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 was it was Jimmy's nature to sort of make these things fun because that was sort of uh, the the quality of the music. You know, was you know it, it, it's a it's a brilliant way, really, to to go through your working life to be able to make sure that you and everybody else is happy it makes the product better it makes it more acceptable to the customer who's going to buy it i mean we're the same way here with our little hotel we you know it's family and everyone here is happy to, to work with each other and it shows and 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 that 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 shows itself in success with the with the guests that come into the building so you know jimmy's philosophy is has always been really pretty good about that and you know, and that coupled with his generosity uh, to make that happen, uh, you know, is it, and so we're all having a good time. And and, and, um, and so the foolishness involved with that, it, it's associated with that sometimes, uh, does when you reminisce or think back on it, it makes you laugh.
0: I was hoping we could get into the, the album that you made, the Hugh Taylor solo record, It's Up To You. How did you go about selecting the songs? Well, the- you know
1: that's a, that's an interesting little scenario too, really. Um, uh, Alex had been doing some work at, at Kingsnake Records. This uh, uh, Bob Greenlee had this marvelous little recording studio in Sanford, Florida, down in Central Florida, and, and he he was a bass player himself and had played, you know, in the in the beach music scene uh, in Daytona Beach, uh, east of there. You know, as a as a high school student and with basically with lots of really great players many of whom uh would frequent King Snake in those you know years after the allman brothers and you know were, were good friends of bob's and anyway so alex migrated to them uh to bob greenlee's place because he was uh, a, a great balladeer but also a great blues singer and and he, he loved blues actually so and bob's uh uh uh, you know his affection for blues too uh, b- made those guys a natural fit and so I, I James and I, and I and I myself went down a number of times and sang some background with Alex on some of his records there he did two or three of them with them and uh and bob asked me if i wanted to do a record i said well gosh bob uh, i don't know what i would do i said i've got a few songs in my mind that you know that i could do but you know and i'm i'm a working man and i just don't really have any time for a lot of rehearsal a lot of songwriting and all that sort of stuff so i i said well let's let's do a little demo tape and send it around see if we can get a production budget so he said well let's pick up some song pick out some songs you know that you're familiar with we don't have to do a lot of rehearsal work on them and and we'll, uh, we'll just put them down. We'll send them out to a couple of labels and see if somebody will give us a budget to, to a, um, you know, to make a real record. So I, uh, I came down there. I sent him a few songs, you know, that, you know, that were on there. And, and so we, we did them. And, uh, with some great, great players that, you know, that frequented, uh, Bob's place, uh, Kingsnake Records there, you know, just a lot of great players on that record. And, uh, and not only did we just do some cover songs that, that were songs that I remembered from you know my teenage years but also uh, we sort of spontaneously wrote a, a, a number of songs or picked up songs that some players around the studio were anxious to get on um, you know on tape themselves you know that they'd been batting around and thinking up and so we we sort of um, we sort of batted those songs around and juiced them up to to, to a little bit of a production level, and we threw them on there too, and so we had this uh, we had this tape full of uh, of music, and it was kind of garage band sounding stuff, and 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 there was a certain uh, attractiveness to that part of it, to that sort of uh, spont- spontaneity to it, you know, it was certainly didn't look, feel rehearsed, and and then we so we sent it around, uh, and and we. We didn't hear from a soul. Not a, not one record company had any interest in it, or if they did, they, they, they lost, we got lost in the mail somehow, but except for, um, a subsidiary of, of Sony records, uh, in Japan called Pony Canyon. And, and that, they, they had done some work and, and released some of Livingston's material in Japan, and they, um, they wanted it. So, they bought it as the record they you know they didn't take it as a demo they they bought it whether uh as as the album they said just clean this up a little bit and 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 we'll put it out so they they paid us for it and and we split the money pretty much you know uh generously across all the players it was a it was a dynamic uh uh sort of split up uh you know of the money and and uh and we we took the record out to a a a a mixing studio out in San Francisco in China Basin and, and, and mixed it out and then, uh, sent it off to them and, and they, they released it and, and it never went anywhere, never did anything. So, but in the contract with them, I had the right to, if it never released in America, I had the right to have the record back and own it myself, in in which case I could do whatever I wanted with it. That was advice of Livingston's to say, well, geez, you you know, they may not ever bring it to America, and then you'll always wonder whether it did anything. And, of course, it didn't do anything anyway, but (laughs) but, uh, but we did get the record back, which is why I was able to send you a copy of it.
0: I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about this inn, and all the people can check out OutermostInn.com. Some beautiful pictures there. But just tell us a little bit about the experience of having this inn and restaurant.
1: Yeah, um, well, Paul, it, it, it's it, you know it's very similar to the. To, it is entertaining, you know. It's what you're doing. You're you're in the entertainment business because, I mean, very similar to what we do uh, with an audience. Uh, you know, there's some, there's some theater in it, mostly in the restaurant side of it, but but mostly, uh, um, and I I sort of equate it. So it's, it's, it's very similar to what James describes as his music career, and how he's—you know—he is what he is on stage, what he is in person, and you know, you, he is what you get, and you get what he is. In that, you know, there's no uh, so so our our place here. Really, it's just it's the quality of life that we have here, and we know it's it's really good, and we feel very very fortunate to to live on this beautiful land, and you know, and uh, in this beautiful part of the world and and so it's easy to just uh all you got to do is just expand it a little bit and 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 allow other people to share it with you and bingo it 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 works it resonates with people and and it's not that much work because it's the life you you know you you really are 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 very very glad to be living anyway so it it, it and then you spread that out with the employees and 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 the whole thing is very is really pretty easy to do and and uh, we you know we going into this thing 30 years ago we thought well geez you know the industry you know these small ends and stuff you get about seven years out of the out of the proprietors and then they they say to hell with this and give it up but the fact is uh we've been able to just keep it going and and uh and make a living at it and, and maintain the building to to a certain extent anyway and so it you know it's it's worked out pretty good i i uh, you know i i was a i was a carpenter when i left high school in north carolina i was 15 and a half when i left home and i i came to the vineyard and and started banging nails i, I had a real drive to build my own home my own house in those days and I, so i learned how to do that and i spent 25 years of my early life you know as a carpenter and a house builder and a contractor and i and I did everything from wiring to plumbing to, you know, to shingling to windows, you know, just everything in that, in that industry as, as you need to do in a small little community like this. And, and, uh, so I was able to build this building and, and, you know, I, I don't know if I, we could have had the successes, uh, you know, having had to pay somebody to fix this and fix that and, you know, put on this addition and that porch and that patio. But, but, uh, because I've got the skill set for that, it, you know, we were able to, really do that, and and here we are, and we, we love it, actually.
0: So if someone is to find themselves at the outermost inn, and they happen to have been fortunate enough to eat something in the restaurant, what's something that you all make that's just hard to beat?
1: That's a good one. Well, Jeannie and I do the breakfast thing. My wife, Jeannie and I do breakfast, and we do that seven days a week for the six months that we're open. And we get up at five o'clock in the morning and start to prep for that. And, and we sort of have a, a menu that we that we go over. You know, it's sort of tried and true stuff that people seem to enjoy coming back year after year. They 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 look forward to this those the, that same aging menu. But uh, but uh, and then the restaurant itself that's actually really really top-notch fine dining it's uh, you know and and the bar is high you know in, in these modern times uh, particularly in these resort communities because there's the kids that come out of these culinary schools and that, and there are lots of them every year graduating you know they just have such innovative you know thought processes and energy to get this stuff out and do a good job at it. Anyway, so we we have a we have real trained chefs and, and experienced chefs and, and kitchen staff that that actually put our meals together. So we we can't all, and we pretty much give them carte blanche to, to design the menu. You know, we we like to make sure we have a lobster on there and a, and a and a protein, you know, that kind of stuff and a meat and a and a fresh fish. So but but basically the actual composition of the of the menu is is pretty much uh done by the chefs here and they w- they traffic through quite a bit uh you know uh, we're really really lucky we've got a great chef in here now who's got about nine years of experience and uh in st thomas and st john and and new orleans and boston and and, and here on the vineyard and he's been with us about three years and and it just is it, he's he's got civility is the rule of uh, order here on in our establishment and it that's a, a big priority is civility in the in, in all the workplace and, and he's he trumpets that and is really good at that too and but his menus uh, are and I would say the standout things, really, I mean, aside from the just the you know the mind-boggling stuff he does with food, is 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 the freshness of the seafood that's here. I mean, that's that's really. I mean, the, we, the water is all around us here, and it's and it's green and rich with all sorts of nutrients, and as a result, all sorts of great fish. So, so I, I if I had to say anything, I'd say fish.
0: What would you say, given the perspectives that you've? Had in life and the experiences that you've had, what is the best thing about being Hugh Taylor?
1: Well, you know, I'm just, I'm probably, you know, one of the luckiest people on earth. I mean, my old wife, who's with me still, but God knows why, um, you know, we've, you know, she. She moved in with me when I was 16 years old, and we've been best friends ever since. And that's that's a really good part of being me, uh, and and our six su- and the successes of our children. Uh, we have two grown uh, kids, and they're and they have grandchildren. They have children, so. Uh, and you know we can't take them a lot of credit for the for those kids' successes, but they are great people, they really are, and so are their children our grandchildren so i um I would say grandparenting is a, is a great part of it but but I'm just a lucky person to have been able to see the things that I enjoy doing and and turn them into uh into a livelihood yeah. not you know uh and and the richness of my life doesn't have much to do with money really, but more to do with uh just the fact that i'm you know i've got I've had a lot of enriching things in my life. Uh, you know, I was a carpenter, which is something I wanted to do since I was a teenager, and I, I've been a, a fireman and a, a, and a member of the community government here. I, you know, I've been a musician. I've sang on stage with you know with people, the likes of Jimmy Buffett and James and Carly and those people. I mean, a lot, just a lot of really amazing stuff. But but I'd say you know I just. The the overall theme, of, uh, you know, that that just boggles my mind is about being me. Is is just how fortunate I've been.
0: How would you define Hugh Taylor?
1: Hmm. Uh, well, I'm. I, you know, it, it's hard to do without without thinking of your parents. To a certain extent, I see a lot of my mother and father in me. Some of the good and some of the bad. But uh, but. Uh, you know i i guess uh i i guess i'd say i i'm a jack of a lot of trades but master of none you know some some of me wants to, wants to, uh, <laughs> thinks that he knows a lot more than he really does and and uh, but i try uh, personally all the time to try to curb those uh those thoughts because in fact there are people out there in all the things i know about there's people out there who know a hell of a lot more than i do so you know and and i i would love to be able to you know engage them and speak with them about all these things that i do and and i have done i'm a i'm a sailor and a boat captain as well I've, i've done that all my life and i i've been a you know merchant marine captain for oh about 40 years now but but you know, uh, and and the sea teaches you something new every time you you go out on it. Every every boat ride is uh, is is going to slap you around a little bit, or else you haven't really even gone. But you know, all these things that I've done, you know, I I realize actually that I'm just uh, I've just sort of broken the tip of the iceberg, and that that you know, there there's such a wealth of information and knowledge out there that you know that makes you humble. That's all. But yeah. Hmm.
0: I always like to close my interviews just by making it completely open ended. Just to give, just to give the guest the microphone, let them take the stage. What would you like to say to our audience?
1: (laughs) Ah, goodness. Goodness. Love yourself and don't bullshit yourself. you know you know be be honest with yourself and be you know and honest with others and don't put on airs you know i i don't know i those i guess that's advice and everybody's got plenty of it but and don't take take things too seriously you know i i look at this political stuff and it's going around in the in the atmosphere of this world today and and, and you know i see you know, i see that the red states and the blue states you know but I've got lots and lots of great friends who who are who think completely different than I politically and but I still you know hold them close and, and with great respect and stuff and I think those are those are all things that we you know we civility is is huge
0: and we need to remember that hmm I agree that's great well Mr Taylor Thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Well, Paul, it's been a great pleasure to
1: speak with you and to, and to get to meet you. And uh, I look forward to hearing some of your, uh, your future interviews. And, and I'm glad to, uh, to understand that you're out there doing
0: this. Well, thank you. All right. Well, if, I, if I'm ever exploring up around Martha's Vineyard, maybe I will get to shake your hand.
1: Oh, yeah. We'd love to have you come in. That'd
0: be great, Paul. All right.
1: (laughs) Give us a shout anytime. All right, sir. All right. Great. Good afternoon, then.
0: All right. You too. Bye. Bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.